So it's my first night under the spots. They've added two spotlights, and I appreciate the efforts to make the stage uh, radiate uh, the light. And uh, I hope it uh, works for you all. I'm not in the dark. <clears throat> I may be in the dark, but I won't be. <laughs> so I just, I just want to share. I got a package tonight when I came in. Uh, I was, and uh, so I opened it. <clears throat> and uh, it was a, there was a book in it plus about four chocolate bars. But, but they're all melted. <laughs> and they melted onto the book. And I tried to open the book, and I, I think it's a uh, poetry book in German. And so it must have been sent from uh, Europe. But uh, so it was, it was kind of a, you know, a messy <laughs> arrangement there. But, but what I want to express, and I hope the person who sent that is watching the video, is I felt the appreciation. I felt the... Uh, the gratitude, and it didn't matter whether the chocolate was melted or the book was uh, smeared. I felt the appreciation, and uh, to you who sent it, I thank you. I will find a way to eat that chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we are uh, the, the the relevant chapter for tonight's talk is chapter eleven. For those who are following it in uh, awakening the book. So please do read along if you, uh, if you have the book. If you don't, there are a number of copies there that I'd be happy to sign. <clears throat> but we're looking at uh, continuums of practice, and the more I uh, work with these continuums, the more I think they're very, very important. I could give you a subject like uh, openness, and you go, oh, that's interesting. What does that have to do with anything, though? You know, I'm supposed to be open in practice. What am I supposed to be open? We all have this kind of of orientation that somehow that word has a spiritual direction to it, but what, how does it fit in to what we're doing here in a long uh, and somewhat uh, uh, arduous journey of our spiritual awakening? And what I'm trying to do is to show you that these words are not words in isolation, but words in the collective movement of our whole consciousness forward. And so I'm trying to show that these words work on a continuum. And the continuum I'm using tonight is uh, from denial, which is pretty much where we all start on a continuum, to openness, <clears throat> which has to be redefined. And that's the, the problem with any right-sided word, the word that's on the right side, which means it's the word that expresses our freedom is that the word that we think mentally about openness is not the word that is being expressed on this continuum. And so the evolution of that word is very much a product of our own conscious evolution along the trail of this continuum. And so we have to be willing to simply shift definitions at some point. We all think we know what openness means, and we, it's a good place to start. But we should never conclude that we know what openness means, because then we're not open. It's to keep this thing forever evolving and changing. And so the word constantly has greater and greater depth, breadth, and leads us uh, to 
its ultimate satisfaction, which is absolute opening. And I'll talk more about that in just a moment. But to get a sense that these continua are really working in relationship to give us a sense of the journey that each word takes us upon. And that the words that we start with are not the words that we end with. And that those words evolve out of our relationship, our, our personal relationship to them. Uh, so uh, it's important that we allow that to occur. Uh, our whole spiritual journey really is uh, a continuation of this redefinition of everything, of ourselves, of the world, of everything. Everything is eternally evolving out from under our definitions. Uh, in fact, that's really the major way that the spiritual journey occurs, is through that evolutionary process. Uh, now, um, so we're, we're looking at this uh, sense of denial, which none of us uh, think of ourselves as being a denying person, but uh, we think of ourselves as having a lot of opinions, if you're honest. Uh, and we don't realize that opinionation, opinions, being opinionated, and denial are really two sides of the same coin. Uh, what we, when we cast a view on something and have an opinion about it, we're also denying where our opinions, the value that we are ascribing to that, which is our opinion. Opinion is always our value about something. But then it doesn't, it's not a complete story of that object. What we don't value in it, what we don't wish it to be, the other side of the opinion, the other side of the equation is what we deny. And so opinions hold the very sense of what we're denying actively within it. And so to get a sense of how opinionated we each are in the beginning, we have opinions about everything. The mind is full of them. That's, the mind is full of our opinions because that helps us define ourselves. When we're full of opinions, you know, we think of ourselves as being uh, sort of on top of things. Somebody who's opinionated is seen as being very um, clear when it's just the opposite, really. Somebody who has a lot of opinions isn't clear at all. They just have a lot of denial going on, in which they are refusing to see the complete story. So openness stands in contrast to that word. It's the complete story. Well, so you say, well, that's interesting. What, is, you know, what does that mean? Well, that's what the talk is about tonight. So I want to also say to you, you, whenever these words, these absolute words like openness, I bring them to you, you need to be a, beware of them. You need to be a little wary of them because uh, they're not for the faint of heart. <clears throat> these words will take us to the depth of ourself and they will show us where we have up until this point been afraid to go. Uh, and so it's not for the faint of heart. It, in fact, the first half of the continuum, the denial component of it, until we come to that counter-influence uh, place on the sheet there, which is when the sense of self, the sense of self, the sense of what I do, my control, my efforts, 
turn upside down and they begin to actually uh, uh, obstruct uh, the movement forward in my spiritual journey. That's called counter-influence. Uh, before that counter-influence occurs, probably 99% of all spiritual teaching occurs in that first, before the counter-influence. That's the safe part. That's where you'll, you can remain who you are and apply the remedies, the ointments of the spiritual journey, the mindful applications, uh, which will um, allow you to become a better person and to sort of uh, delight in, in, in your ability to alter your mental states and your consciousness. And uh, you, life will be better from having done so. So it's not that uh, it is without value, it has a great deal of value. It's just not the complete story. In fact, from a spiritual point of view, it's a very small part of the story. It's a nice preparation. It's like uh, before you go to church, putting on a suit and shining your shoes. It, it's not anything, it doesn't have anything to do with the church service, you might say, but it's in preparation for the presentation of yourself going forward. And, uh, and that's helpful. That's helpful. Uh, but it's, at some point, uh, likely, uh, if you stay with that, within the first half of the continuum, you begin to get a little uh, frustrated because you had expected more from your spiritual, uh, from your spiritual practice than, it is, than the payoff of what you're receiving. And uh, that can begin to grind a little bit on you. Uh, and I actually believe it's a little bit like uh, the sands, sand grain in an oyster. That that uh, kind of it's a, uh, irritation or just annoyance of, wow, this is, this is just not really going as far as I'd hoped. There's a pearl that forms in there. And if that pearl is sufficiently uh, formed, then we will then journey the next half. Of the of the of the of the practice, uh, it's that second half of the practice where uh, my own teaching really begins. I'm not so much interested in the first half. I I think that you can get that from just about any teacher, and I encourage you to do so. And I'm not again undervaluing its worth. It's just that. Uh, at a certain point, you begin not to hear the importance of the second half, and you think, okay, I've got to lend my voice to that. It's important. So that's the reason I say what I say when, uh, and for as long as I've been saying it. Okay, so let's look for a moment. Um, you know, I'd just like to use the, let the word openness sit in our consciousness for a moment. Just let it, just see what, what, what it brings up in you when you just let openness, the word, just float in your consciousness, you see. What does openness mean to me? What is being open, open, truly open? See what? Uh, it begins to, you, you can begin to get a sense that, wait a second here, uh, I need to bring in the boundaries a little bit here. This thing's, I mean, this thing can go, this has an infinite reach this word it doesn't stop, does it? And uh, so you go, oh, I need to have something where I can, 
I can wall it in a little bit and make it uh, useful, make it, uh, make it more applicable to my situation. Well, that's the problem with it. It doesn't do that. The word is forever uh, uh, expanding. And that's the real, if you get a sense of that ever expanding nature of that word, you begin to sense how truly deep this continuum moves us. Uh, because it's beyond opinions. Uh, openness isn't a new opinion. I need to be open. You're closed and I'm open. If you had it together, you'd be open too. Uh, that isn't openness. Openness includes those who are closed-minded. You see? You see how expansive it is? It doesn't, doesn't stop in terms of its inclusivity. And uh, so there's no boundary, you see. And now you begin to see why it's perilous. Uh, why it's, why the, if you go t too far out there, it, you know, it's, it exposes us. It exposes all the ways that we're not open, is what it exposes. And any time you take a word of this dimension, openness, and you let it sit within you, you see where you're closed. That's what it does to you. It shows you where you're, you know, where you have resistances and uh, obstructions and ideas and boundaries and where you're trying to close yourself in all the time. This word doesn't do that, so it exposes our edges. And that's the value of it. You want to see your edges. If you're truly interested in moving beyond your own limitations, the greatest limitation that we possess is you. The sense of I, the sense of me. And you need a word that takes you beyond your boundaries in order for that to occur, you have to use a word that really entices or in, in, uh, in, invites a, a little bit of, of uh, fear in us. And any absolute word will do that. You see what, I mean, if we, um, if we look at what uh, the Dharma is, the Dharma, you might define it as the undefended fact. As soon as you start defending the fact, possessing it, owning it, arguing it, uh, opinionating, then it's no longer the Dharma. The Dharma, it's, bec it's become your possession. And so we are always defending the facts. We defend, you know, every fact. You know, I'm this way and you're that and on and on. And this is the way everybody should be and you know all of that. The Supreme Court just amazes me sometimes. All of it does though. It's, not, it's just like, it's just the world is full of defended facts. But the Dharma is an undefended fact. A fact that exists on its own. Just what it is. It doesn't get abridged or elaborated upon. It's just what it is. It's just this. It's just this simple. Just this simple, you see. And in denial, denial d doesn't look at the facts. It looks at the opinions for the facts. I have an opinion about this fact. 
And so denial is an obstruction, is a dharma obstruction. Because it doesn't look at the fact, it looks at my opinions about the fact. You see? And so once we have an opinion about the fact, we're no longer seeing the dharma. We're not going to see what really is when all we really hear is the ideas we have about something. That's not an undefended fact, that's a very defended fact. So to get a sense then, you know that there's a false nirvana close by here. Uh, at some point as we journey along our Dharma practice, uh, we start recognizing the value of openness. I mean, we sit with our thoughts and we sit with our emotions and we see that the less we invest with ideas about these emotions, the less content-laden these emotions are, the more they open up, they become, uh, they become uh, friendly, they're benign, and they don't have any recoiling, uh, I don't have any difficulty with them. They're just, just that, they're just an emotion, they're just a thought, they're just whatever it might be. Now, at this point, uh, we can think that we're really moving somewhere, which we are, uh, but we have to be very careful because there, the false nirvana is very close behind. What happens is that we start developing opinions about people who have opinions when, or who are lost in their emotions or who have a different uh, uh, way of looking at their mind than what we have just experienced on our own. And when we have the experiential fact of seeing emotions becoming less obtrusive in our life, less reactive to them, then we start asserting ourselves and our opinions about how everyone should live this spiritual life and your reactive patterns, what's the matter with you, can't you, why don't you sit, why don't you meditate, you know, or all of that sort of thing. And so that's one of the ways we start moving this thing into a, this once opinionless, the, the opinionless dharma into an opinionation and we re-solidify re ourselves going forward by our Dharma history. Another way is that as we become looser and we begin to see the um, equality of all beings and we start working and feeling the warmth of our heart and the sharing of that warmth so that we feel a genuine sense of connection, well then we get very um, a sense of, uh, of inclusive, inclusiveness and uh, a very strong sense of egalitarianism, that everything should be equal, and, uh, and we get very righteous if, uh, if we uh, sense that something isn't being fair, isn't fair. For instance, uh, you know, uh, the Supreme Court uh, decisions on, uh, on uh, gays and lesbians just came, I mean, Seattle being what it is, oh yeah, that's a very fair, uh, very fair arrangement. And we, we say, you know, I'm, I must be getting open here because even a few years ago I didn't have this opinion, but now I'm seeing the equal opportunity and value of everyone, except for those judges that didn't vote for it. See, it's, it's, not, it's not true openness, it's liberalism. And liberalism substitutes for openness. Well, I'm liberal. 
You know, I, I like to see it, everyone being equal and fair with all beings and, you know, and this is, our practice has worked its way into that perception so that we look out and we see in truth that people uh, are equal and all beings, but when it comes to our opinionation, our opinions, that's where we come back into form. We come back into form when somebody contradicts the fairness issue, which has really become the issue of where we will open. Openness doesn't mean open, it means that everybody should be treated fairly, and those who don't treat others fairly, I'm not open to. But openness doesn't have that kind of reservation. Openness is beyond those definitions, beyond that reservation. Even those people who are not, those judges who didn't vote, are we open to them? Are we still open? Is there still the ability for our consciousness to expand and accept that limitation as well? You see, we're always called upon to reach further because consciousness, consciousness, our consciousness, has no limits. There's no boundaries on this thing. If we're going to be truly conscious, then we have to be boundaryless. And every time we set a boundary, we've ascribed a position in relationship to a closed, kind of like a horse that wears blinders, a narrow view of what consciousness is. So how far do we want to take this thing, you see? We want to take it through the word what openness means to me when I begin is fairness, it's fair, you know, everything's fair and, and everybody's liberal and everybody nods and you stop when somebody, you know, you're all, we're all politically correct and all of that. Or do you want to take it beyond that? You want to take it to the false nirvana of social niceness? Or do you want to take the next step? with this. It's always there for us. And we have to decide how far we're willing to go. And again, if you want to stop and say, you know, niceness is good enough for me, fine, that's, that's perfectly appropriate. But just don't think that's the end. Don't think that you've concluded your journey in some way, because there is no conclusion to the journey. We're always, is it, as the universe is expanding, so is our consciousness, so is the ability to evolve and to move. And so we're always learning new areas in which openness needs to expand into. So, this, so the evolution is never complete. You don't get to a place where now I no, I no longer have to observe any longer. I no longer have to be a part of anything. I've, Arrived. There's no arrival here. Now, the, when the warning sign of a false nirvana is that uh, you don't, you don't know why others don't think the same way you do. That's a pretty good indication that we are often running counter to the Dharma. So then you have to think, okay, so you know I'm. It's just the direction I want to go. So, you know, the, one of the hardest 
you know, you're sitting down a new student and you've been given the instructions and you're saying, okay, now we're going to develop a different relationship to our mind. We're going to be starting to be open to things that we've never been open to before. All of the different uh, processes in us, we're going to start looking at differently than we have reacted to prior to this. And, you, and you're supposed to believe in openness. You're supposed to believe that something good will come out of that. And yet the world, and, and so as you start doing that, you begin to feel the effects of that, but then you extrapolate and you think, well, you know, I can't live like this. I can do this in meditation, but I can't live like this. So as soon as we get up from the meditation, we close down, having made a judgment that you know, this is fine, this is a fine way to be with my mind when I'm in meditation, but don't expect me to go to work this way. I can't go to work being open and, and uh, because it's too vulnerable. The world's too mean. It's too, it's coming at us. And so I have to, I have to sort of close myself off in order to survive. And we think, so what does the Dharma have to say about that place where we close ourselves off? You see? And that's why the journey seems to take so long, is that we're always closing ourselves off. We don't believe that we can actually put into action this dimension of openness. Maybe a little bit. You see, I'll be open to that neighbor next door. I never liked him, but that's an intolerant mind trying to be tolerant. That's not openness. See, the openness is a different, it's a different dimension for lack of a better word. It calls, us, it calls us beyond our assumptions. You know, it's amazing to me, you know, that the science <clears throat> is supposed to be the, you know, the objective view of where it's leading us into, you know, what's true and all of that. And yet the assumptions on which science are based are never tested or, or questioned the assumptions of separation, the assumptions of materialism. There's, those are just, uh, even consciousness is seen as a material product of the processes of mind, which is nonsense to anyone who's ever meditated. And so you, you begin to see you can't rely on science to show us our way towards what openness is. In fact, uh, if I can just, because I, I have a, a certain love for, for science, like right now, there's this mystery called dark matter, right? So the matter that you see, which isn't dark, which is everything, everything in the universe, you know, all of that, the 100 billion galaxies and the 100 billion stars, all of that, that adds up. If you add up all that mass, it's only 4% of the total mass that the universe contains. So where is the rest, right? Where's the rest of all that? Well, they call it dark energy and dark mass. That's the rest. They, except they have no idea what dark energy and dark mass is. So they keep trying to find it within the material realm that they know because their assumptions are that it has to be material because everything's material, right? So they have this idea that if they just, their Geiger counters are just fine-tuned enough that they'll pick up whatever the 96% of the rest of the universe is. 96% is a lot, right? So, but... In the mystical traditions, there are different dimensions. When you die, for instance, 
you lose your material, physical material uh, body, that's obvious, but that something else continues in a different dimension. Could dark matter be the countless dimensions that, this, that the Buddha talked so well and thoroughly about, uh, rather than looking for it on the only dimension that we recognize, which is the material one, you see? It might be that we could find the 96% of the missing part of the universe within something that is denied through the assumptions that we are embedded within, that this is all, this is it. The material view of life is all there is. So you can see how these subtle assumptions that we live with really begin to distort the way we perceive everything. And our views and our opinions do the same. We each have these deeply embedded assumptions of, and the one that's perhaps the most obvious to some of us is the sense of fairness, you know? That, that sense that, you know, I'll stand in line and you don't get ahead of me. And it's most rudimentary phase, but it has to do with everything. And that our issues of reactivity really come when that fairness issue is crossed. You see, but the rest of the world, even outside of the West, doesn't operate like that. I was once uh, standing in line for an airline ticket in Bangladesh Airlines. I was flying off uh, to Asia, and I was, you know, I was standing there, and I wasn't getting any closer to the counter. And I couldn't figure out why I was reading while I was going. I, and I was just wasn't, I was like 10th in line. And after an hour, I was 10th in line. And I said, what's going on here? And because the people from Bangladesh who were in line ahead of me were letting their friends in. And I protested. I said, well, this isn't fair. And they looked at me like I was some kind of alien. <laughs> it's like, this, we don't work that way. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Stand in line, stay there. <laughs> maybe you'll get your ticket and maybe you won't. So it's like, it doesn't, you see, when you get outside of the box of where we have created these, these invisible assumptions that we kind of live by, you begin to see something wider than that, something broader, something more expansive. And certainly, fairness is one of those values that we can't believe the rest of the world can, could live without. Just isn't fair. <laughs> so you, you begin to get a sense that, that we really have to, to come into openness. We have to examine the assumptions we carry about life. Because it's within those assumptions that we are most embedded within the logic and opinionation. of some, Life doesn't hold that. Where is life fair? It's not fair. If it were fair, young children would never die before their parents. And the criminals would always die before the righteous. And it doesn't happen that way. So you ju what we're doing is finding that place of which something is just what it is, not what we've made it into, you see? Because what we've made it into is a closed down version of the reality we seek. 
What is the reality we see? What is it actually? Not what, would, what do we bring to it? Not the reality I want to be here. But what is the reality in its raw form? Can I open to that? And that will test us. That's why it's not for the weak hearted. And this continuum, reality, it's always that. It always shows you another example of where we're based in our assumptions. That's what the Dharma does. It starts expanding our consciousness where we can no longer live within our own intolerance. And it shows us, you can, you, go, you can stay there if you want to, be miserable, or you can come out. And at some point comes the counter-influence, where what's making us miserable is our own influence. And we no longer can work our spiritual practice along that particular line of thinking. We can't keep figuring ourselves out prior to the realization of what we really are. We have to lead with openness and not with our assumptions. And if I were able to show how much we carry those assumptions decades into the practice, the assumption of the body, when we close our eyes, where is that assumption? What is that assumption in actual reality? Is very differently felt than the solidity that's represented in the mirror's reflection. And yet, what do we carry forward in our life? Do we carry the mirror's reflection of reality or do we carry that vagueness that is the real experience of ourselves? So there are a few, because I'd like to, um, I'd like to mention a few uh, insights that I will suggest us uh, orienting ourselves to, to come to some sense of what openness really is. And uh, the first is how opinions limit us. You can say, okay, so I want to know, you know, he's talking about opinions, and opinions aren't being open. The opinions and denial are really the two sides of the same coin. So let me just start observing how opinions contract me, keep me sort of from being expansive, from being truly available, uh, from opening uh, beyond what my thoughts depict in this particular situation. And I, I just just would suggest each of us doing that, seeing how opinions reify reality. It's a, you can do that in listening. You know, when you are listening to someone, you already know who they are, all about them, and you're kind of listening half attentively. Those opinions are keeping us selective in our listening. Selective listening is an indication that we are leading with our opinions. And so if we want to understand the difference between openness, which is full listening, 
and partial listening, which is the imprint of their image upon our listening, or listening through their image, then that's a perfect way to start. You start examining what it means to live with opinions, and you start seeing that you would rather live without them. You will. That's the way the Dharma always does. It always unfolds the greater opportunity when we look at the limitation that we live under. You say, okay, I, I don't want to listen half-heartedly to someone. I want to be fully there. I want to let them be who they are in that moment rather than what I bring to that moment from my past history with them. See, the new is always a mandate to include. It doesn't have to be judged and excluded because it's not known. When something is new, it can be included. Let me see what this is. What's going on here? So that's, that's the first insight I would just encourage each of us to start moving in. If openness is a word that invites your interest, is it a word that you want in your life? It would be hard to f say you are a Dharma student and have no relationship to that word. I'll say, uh, uh, another uh, insight. What is the, there's no buffer. The, here, usually this is the, the scenario is, you know, we, we figure out what it means to be open in a particular situation and then apply what we think is needed in that situation for us to be open. For instance, in my, what I just got through saying, oh, I find myself listening only partially. I know I'm closed. Okay, so now I want to see all that's for those of you who remember the last talk on uh, from uh, habit to surrender or whatever it was. So, adaptation to surrender. That's twisting the dials there. Openness really doesn't twist dials. I mean, it's okay to do that because that's, most of us find ourselves enmeshed in our personality and our resistances and then we pull out and we look from a different vantage point and we go back in and we find ourselves resistant to the, all of that in and outward. But really, openness, there's, there's no boundary between openness and reality. It doesn't, it doesn't dialogue about reality. It simply is present to reality. You see, so true openness, real openness, there's no filter. It's, you know, I used to hear this and I think, it's being, it's, abiding with things as they are. And I say, I always abide with things as they are. No, we don't. We abide with things as we think they are. And the thought is a kind, a continuous buffer that we place upon life in order to make it serviceable to our needs. But what if we just abided to things as they are? then that's a very different, you see, there's no buffer there. It's just, just this. So from time to time, get a sense of the buffer between you and the living situation. 
all the things that are going between you and that object, person, or whatever it might be that's in front of you. All of the, all of the noise that is being filtered. And just be open to that. Now you're throwing the, shoulders, the shutters wide open. So you're not denying the noise that's there. You're no longer letting the noise confiscate your attention so that you only see through the noise. You can see the room with the noise rather than just hear the noise and then see the object. So I just want to encourage a little more progress, if you can use that word, or a little more attention to that particular aspect of, of openness. Okay, so here's one that will follow us in many of the uh, continua, and that is uh, to, uh, the more we open, the less control we have. The more open we are, the less control we have. Okay, those two are indirectly proportional, right? More open, less control. More control, less open, right? Teeter-totter. So, when you're in control, you know you're not open. When everything is like, you know, I've got to have it this way, and this is, has to be my, you know, and everything has to be done my way, that's not openness. You can get a sense of how open you are in relationship to the, your use of control. So start just becoming aware of that. Notice the exertion of control. It can be on a person or it can be on yourself. It can be inward control. I'm in the sort of the way that we, we butcher ourselves through our own self-judgments, you know, and then you're not open. Okay, so what openness means something to me in this moment, or does control mean more? And to give yourself, yourself that challenge in moving yourself forward so that you don't just stay reconditioning the same patterns over time so that we never challenge the patterns that we live with under. Because what did that have to do with openness, all this self-mutilation? What is it? it has everything to do with openness. You see, you, have, you can't let this just be a talk and then you go home and go to sleep and tomorrow's tomorrow. It has to be, there has to be a carry for it. There has to be something that, if you want your journey to move, you have to carry some of this stuff forward and actually start integrating it into your life. Okay, so... One more. <laughs> okay, the openness doesn't come through thinking. Right? So if you're thinking about how well you are being and how open you are, well, the thought itself isn't open. So it's more immediate than that. So the, the sense of openness isn't resolved through thinking. It's not a question of thought or ponderance. It's really a question of just releasing the need to think and being quiet in the situation. When you're quiet, there's natural openness because it's only our opinions that keep us closed. So you can start working a little bit with that. Okay, the quieter I am, the more naturally open I am. And so just to be able to start sensing the effectiveness 
on how this continuum moves us beyond our, our uh, false nirvanas of equality and fairness and niceness and all of that, beyond the self-improving ways that we try to force ourselves to be open, which, are, which is an oxymoron. Forcing yourself to be open is an oxymoron. And bringing in that sense of questioning, like, what, what am I doing to myself here? Let me, just, let me just give myself some respite time here and really look and see what I'm doing to myself. Let me look at this question of openness. How open am I? Does this word mean anything to me? Is it important in my life? Is it important to my life and relationship? Is it important to everything about the Dharma? Or does it have no bearing whatsoever on how I live? You see, we don't know how we're going to change when we're open. We don't know what it's going to make us into. And there's a risk there. Right? Maybe I'll become one of the conservative judges. Not likely. Because it does move universally towards all beings. Towards warmth of heart. But it's a risk. You don't know that because you're releasing the control to force your way into that mold. But what comes out is miraculous. Okay, y'all. Thank you. So maybe we can just sit for a minute or two. So as we sit, I just want to talk a little bit about openness in relationship to the meditation. But I don't want it to stop in formal meditation. So it's being informed by the world. The inward and the external. If you make that differentiation, or just the world at large, the, all of it together. It's allowing all of that to touch us, to be affected by it, to receive it without screening anything, without any self-condemnation about how well you're doing or not doing, about the number of times you lapse in focus. This is the way to the greatest connection and the greatest involvement and the greatest depth of caring. Okay, if there are any questions or comments about anything, I'd be happy to respond if I can. Anybody want a chocolate bar? <laughs> Come with your spoon. <laughs> it, it's called the 
the book, but I'm a chapter four. And I'm wondering, a reason to be able to jump to the chapters that you're talking about, should I be doing that? <laughs> she wants to know if she should be following the chapters I'm suggesting or go through the book one through however many chapters there are. Um, I would, um, you can do whatever you like. You'll come to those chapters eventually anyway. And I will be giving more talks than there are chapters. So I can't assign a chapter to every talk, right? So just start from one and go forward. And you'll find that the theme of it all carries right on through this series. Yes? By, by a person or who? The person you're working with tomorrow is very closed. A competent and opinionated. Yes. And you're wondering how you can work with that person? Yes, and not just get ran over by being open. Okay, so what do you think open's going to do? I mean, I, when you're, I mean, it's not a uh, autumn, it's not letting somebody run over you. That's not, I mean, openness has, can say no, right? There's a no to openness. Right? Or it doesn't just uh, put your opinions aside or your ideas aside, let's put it that way, your ideas aside and let their, idea, their ideas become the standard. Right? That, so you aren't, you, when you're open, you don't, aren't told what to do all the time. Right? So you have to find your way. And you want to be open to this person. Maybe that's what you've heard about them, but when they meet you or when they there's a whole different energy that is organized within every relationship and perhaps that person uh, will be different than you uh, think that they will be. So you, you have to be open to the possibility of them being different than your idea and then you listen to them too because even though they may be very opinionated they also may be very uh, experienced in what they're saying and they carry a lot of of experience within that opinionation and so there are two sides to that opinion you don't just want to reject somebody because they're opinionated because sometimes there's a lot of experience expressed with through those opinions. so it's not a you see it's you're being open to all of that basically you're you're offering that person a more complete receptivity than you would have given them if you went there thinking oh this person's going to be judgmental of me because I'm not as competent as they are and they're you know and then then you're going to have it you box yourself in so just lay yourself out there and see what happens and don't be afraid of expressing your ideas if you think that they have something to say but then you also have to watch your pain body because sometimes you know the child in us is activated from the parent that we see in this other person telling us what to do right and then that part unless you're open to seeing that part of you that will rule the day and that person will think I'm never working with her again she's too obstinate and you see so all of it you're just learning dear all you're doing is learning a little more about yourself without forming ideas going into the situation 
Okay? So you just give yourself an opportunity to learn. Am I learning something new about them? Am I learning something new about myself? Then I'm being open. If you're not learning, then you're opinionated, and then you're not open. Right? There's, there's, a, there's a good... Yes? Adjusting the what? The dialogue? The dials? Yeah. Yeah. Right. No, see, I mean, well, you're, you see, the noticing doesn't have the. You slapped yourself. I know. The noticing doesn't have that, doesn't contain that. Wait a minute, get this point because it's a crucial point. No, 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 wait. The noticing, the awareness of, of what is going on does not contain the slap. The slap is your reaction to the noticing. Just forget that part. It, you, already, you already notice it. You don't need to, the slap doesn't do anything that make you cringe and make, and make the conditioning harder to overcome. And, but the noticing still in my mind. It's still my thinking I'm not present even if I'm noticing, right? The noticing is, you do not have to be present in order to notice. What I'm saying is, pure noticing doesn't need you there. Yeah. Awareness doesn't need you there, okay? But mostly we are kind of, we show up with the awareness and start slapping ourselves with what we see, from what we see. My suggestion is to be open to what you see. Don't retaliate against yourself for what you see. That doesn't do any good. If it, if it straightened you up, made you a better person, then you could butcher yourself towards freedom. It doesn't work. Welts don't work in this game. Noticing works. Awareness works. Awareness works. Awareness is enough. Oh, I see what I've been doing. That's interesting. You see, now you're open to what you just saw. You're not retaliating. When you slap yourself for what you just saw, that's not being open to what you saw. That's being very judgmental about what you just saw. You see, just the awareness is enough. We don't think it's enough. We don't think it's going to do anything. We think the slap is what does it. I've got to find myself coming back, you know, and being more connected to that slap doesn't do anything. It separates you more, not less. It reassures you that the behavior you just saw that led to the slap will be reconditioned and reinforced from that slap. That's true. It doesn't solve anything. Just the noticing's enough. Oh, I see. Wow. See, that's the wisdom. But we just don't trust wisdom. We trust punishment. We think everything goes forward through my judgment. And that narrow, moralistic way I look at life and myself keeps me from falling off the whatever, I don't know. 
it's a hard one to get over because our culture is built upon it. But it's useless. Okay, all. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.